Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. It's such an honor and a privilege um, to be able to be joined uh, by Howard Marks, uh, the legendary investor and co-founder of Oak Tree Capital Management. In addition to running a firm that manages $120 billion, Howard is quite an author. His newsletters and memos about markets and economics are read all around the industry and are often across a variety of different trading desks. And he just released his latest book, Mastering the Market Cycle. Howard, welcome to Goldman Sachs. Thank you, Ashok. Great to be here. So before we get into the book, um, you know, start a little bit with sort of your background and history. What sparked your curiosity uh, in finance? Well, I'm a kid from Queens, and I uh, went to the public schools in Queens. As odd as it may seem, my education, high school education, included accounting. And I liked accounting. My dad was an accountant, so I figured I'd be an accountant, and I went off to Wharton uh, to take a degree in accounting. But when I got there, I was introduced to finance, and I found that more interesting, so I switched my major to finance. Um, uh, then, um, I wanted to get an MBA. In those days, you could get an MBA right from college. And so uh, uh, I applied to uh, the good business schools. Um, and uh, some of them, Harvard, Stanford, for example, required experience. And University of Chicago didn't. So I went there. And uh, I had a summer job at Citibank in 68 in the investment research department. And then when I got, was getting out, I still didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I applied for six different jobs in six different fields. and. Uh, but, uh, you know, on the strength of the experience that I had, I went back to Citibank uh, into the investment research department. And so in 1995, you started Oak Tree. Right. Why? Uh, you know, we, what we said at the time was that we wanted to have uh, a firm that ran our way. We had uh, ideas on what the right investment philosophy was for us, not necessarily for everybody, but for us. Um, you know, we were in the ag aggressive risk-oriented uh, asset classes like high-yield bonds and convertibles and distressed debt and uh, opportunistic real estate and uh, emerging markets, so forth. And our approach was to be the controlled risk option in some risky asset classes. And that was a big part of our philosophy. And everything we do at Oak Tree now uh, runs according to the same philosophy. It's, it's implemented differently because markets are different, but the underlying philosophy is the same, and uh, it, it fits with what, with our personality. It fits with our values. It fits with what the clients, our clients, want, and and so it's very uh, holistic. I mean, did you ever envision Oak Tree becoming what it is today? The the alternative investment category, which is where I place us went from being an oddball sideshow that you might put a little into to spice up your portfolio to a respectable uh, component of investing, number one. And so, you know, we started, we started in 95. At the end of 95, we had five billion under management. And at the end of 97, we had 10 billion under management. And at, uh, I would say that at the end of, oh, uh, six, we probably had 35. But 
One of the things that really changed is that in order to pull the world out of the global financial crisis, the central banks pulled down the risk-free rate from, let's say, three or four to zero or minus. And uh, most institutional investors have the concept of a required return. Pension funds basically need nine and a half, uh, seven and a half or eight. Most endowments need eight in order to pay out five to support the institution, earn two to cover inflation and one to cover administration. So uh, most U.S. institutions need seven to eight. And today, for example, and by the way, remember that rates have come up a great deal in relative terms. So today, uh, cash pays one, five-year pays two, the 10-year pays three, high grades pay four, high yield pays six, stocks are expected to return five or six. And so the investors have had to turn to alternative investing to get the, the returns they need in a low return world. And uh, my late father-in-law would call these people handcuff volunteers. They're not doing what they necessarily wanna do, they're doing what they have to do to get the returns they need. And so that has produced enormous cash inflows to all alternative investment firms. So along those lines, if you look at really probably up until July 2016, maybe after Brexit, if you want to mark an inflection point, you know, we've been in this sort of disinflationary bull market mm -hmm. run mm -hmm. in bonds for really close to 30 years. Yes. And so if we are, again, no longer in a bull bond market, you know, forget about calling it a bear bond market, right. how do you think about that? How do you think about, you know, the impact on Oak Tree, but more specifically, the impact on how you would invest? So, where are we? First of all, if you look at history, history says that zero, or even where we are today, is unnaturally low relative to uh, the strength of the economy and inflation. So that says that rates should have been higher than zero and probably higher than where they are today. Uh, number two, uh, most people who work in the investment business, and I assume all of you, believe that the free market is the best allocator of resources, and uh, that's the value of capitalism and, and uh, laissez-faire economics and so forth. And clearly, we haven't had a free market in money, so we have not had good asset uh, uh, allocation. And, uh, you know, uh, borrowers have been subsidized and savers uh, and lenders have been penalized. Uh, so, uh, you know, I would assume that the, that the Fed would like to get out of the, business, the idea of administering rates and let them fro float freely. And we have to get from bargain rates for stimulus purposes to uh, free market rates. And then finally, well, maybe not finally, but um, the Fed considers it very important to have the ability to cut rates in order to bail out the economy if it starts to weaken. That's the prime uh, tool, and if the rate is zero, you can't cut it. So it, I think if I was running the Fed, it would, it would be a high priority to get rates high enough so that you can cut them meaningfully uh, when needed. They want to raise rates to prevent the economy from overheating and, and lapsing into hyperinflation. So it, it has been clear that eventually rates would start going up. How could that have come to a surprise to anybody? Who could have been 
in the investment world or in the financial world and been surprised by rising rates. It's just that you know, short rates rose for a long time without long-term rates rising. That doesn't make any sense. And eventually, long-term rates started to rise and everybody freaked out. Uh, but it, the failure of people to anticipate rising rates and the ability to be surprised by rising rates earlier this month just shows you how myopic and blind the markets can be. Right. So given that you now, you know, that Oak Tree is now $120 billion, and I understand, you know, not all pools of money are the same. Realistically, given the size of that tanker, how much time would you really need to meaningfully adjust a portfolio? Given well, well, first of all, I, I appreciate your use of the word adjust because a lot of people who are less astute than you would uh, say, how, much would, how, how long would it take to go to cash? And the answer is going to cash. We don't go to cash, and going to cash almost under almost all circumstances is stupid because, uh, among other things, when you go to cash, you have to be right, right away. Because if you go to cash and, and prices start, keep going up for a while, as they invariably will, and, and, and uh, returns continue to be positive, you fall so far behind by being in cash that you may even jeopardize your business to stay in business. And you'll certainly jeopardize a lot of your client accounts. So, uh, but you use the term adjust portfolios. And, you know, we, if, if you read the book, as I hope you will, you'll see that we don't think about when is the turn going to come or when is the bottom going to come. And in fact, when is one of the words I reject in our business because we sometimes have an idea what's going to happen and we never know when. The turns in, that matter, you see, the market is a little bit volatile. I mean, the, the economy is a little bit volatile. Sometimes it's up three and sometimes it's up, up one and sometimes it's down one. Company profits are more volatile because companies are leveraged, operating in financial. But market prices do this because they're driven by people, by people's emotion, by what we call human nature. And um, so to, to figure out when things are going to happen, you would have to be able to predict emotion, which is impossible. And so we don't ever think about when at Oak Tree. We think, and, and, and one of one of my mottos is we never know where we're going, but we sure as hell ought to know where we are. What's going on around us? What does that imply about the future? And um, if we conclude that the present developments justify a more defensive position, then there's no time like the present. So we start, and we do what we can, and hopefully we do enough before the stuff hits the fan. And you talked about you know, sort of the pain associated with going to cash. And then if you mm. engage in abstention and the market keeps going mm. up, then obviously you underperform. And, and let's point out the most important, one of the most important adages in investing, that being too far ahead of your time is indistinguishable from being wrong. Absolutely. Early is wrong. Sure. Um, but along those lines, um, has that changed over the course of the last, you know, again, call it 25 years? No. Uh, uh, no, because in order to predict and work toward and game for a relative return. Now, now, not only do you have to know what's going to happen, but you have to know how other people are going to behave 
in response to what's going to happen, and you have to uh, set your game for that. So, again, it sounds uh, maybe impractical. All we try to do is the right thing. If, 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 if prices are too high, if risks are too high, if interest rates are too low, then we, uh, if, 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 the, if the economy seems to be getting old, then we try to reduce our risk. And obviously we came through um, pretty formidable financial crisis and ensuing recession. Where do you think the market is with respect to remembering the financial crisis of 08? And how much do you think that is manifesting itself in investor behavior? Um, John Kenneth Galbraith said in his book, a Short History of Financial Euphoria, that one of the outstanding characteristics of financial markets is shortness of memory. Now, it's not that people are stupid or their brains don't work, but what it is is that sitting here on this shoulder, you have memory of the past and, and resulting prudence. And you say, well, you know, the, the last time the market went up this much and this fast and this far, bad things happened. And the last time the P.E. ratio was 20 and, and, and so forth and the spread was inverted or whatever you want to look at, bad things happened. So I'm going to cut my risk. That's sitting here. On this shoulder, you have uh, greed. Greed wins. Now, under the rubric of greed, I would put you know, fear of missing out, fear of, fearing, fear of trailing the competition, etc. But these emotions overcome old-fashioned prudence. Uh, so you know, I put out a memo. Uh, three weeks ago today, entitled The Seven Worst Words in the World, and I believe they are too much money chasing too few deals. And um, because when there is too much money chasing too few deals, and the money is in the hands of people who are too eager to put it to work, and who are too driven by fear of missing out, and, too, and not afraid enough of losing money, then they bid too aggressively for securities, which takes the form of driving down prospective returns and driving up risk. So when you decided to, to write a book, what, what was the story that you wanted to tell? Well, first of all, I always thought, I started writing the memos in 1990, and I always thought that when I retired, I would pull them together into a book. And then in 09, I think it was, I got a letter from Warren Buffett, and he said, if you'll write a book, I'll give you a blurb for the jacket. So that catalyzed my thinking. Uh, you don't, you don't uh, pass up an opportunity like that. And uh, so, you know, the first book was called The Most Important Thing, and it has uh, 21 chapters, and each chapter says the most important thing is, and then it's a different thing. Because, you know, I would find myself sitting in a client's office, and I would say the most important thing is controlling risk, and five minutes later, I'd say the most important thing is buying cheap. And the th five minutes later, I'd say the, you know, the most important thing is, is uh, uh, knowing where we stand in the cycle or something like that. So I wrote this first a memo around 023 uh, called The Most Important Thing and then this book. Uh, and uh, you know, there are so many things that you have to juggle at the same time to be a good investor that I wanted to it share that with people. You know? And uh, I think I said in the introduction that I am not writing to make investing easy. I would rather write to show how hard it is, because there are so many things that have to be juggled simultaneously. Uh, but if you 
take an area like investing and you try to make it seem easy, you're really doing people a disservice. If we, if we said to people, you know, you, if you really spent some time on it, you could do your own dentistry or your own legal work or fix your own car, you know, we wouldn't be doing people a favor. And the same is true with investing. For some reason, while nobody does their own dentistry or auto repairs, everybody thinks they can be an investor. And if they're going to try, I'm at least going to give them some of the considerations. So one of the things in that 21 was knowing where we stand in the cycle. Now I think there are two, uh, among the 21 most important things, I think two are really the most important, except for the others. And, and they are, number one, risk and controlling risk, because I think that ri controlling risk is the mark of a professional. Anybody can make money when the market goes up, and most of the time the market goes up. And anybody who, in, who takes above average risk can do above average when the market rises. So achieving returns is not a point of distinction in good times. In my opinion, the distinction of a superior investor is achieving returns in good times with the risk under control. Because you never know when the environment is going to shift from favorable to unfavorable, and the question is, are you prepared? You know, somebody who, if the market's up 10 and you're up 12 and the market's down 10 and you're down 12, you didn't accomplish anything. The question is, can you make more in the good times than you give back in the bad times? And then I think the other thing that's most important is the cycle and where we stand in it. I don't believe in predicting the future. We never know where we're going. We should understand the present. And where we are in the present, where the market is relative to its cycle, tells you something about the odds that govern the future. Doesn't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. But I believe that we can only understand, since the world is an uncertain place filled with randomness, we can't know what's going to happen in the future. But those of us who see the world more clearly than others can have a superior understanding for the probability distribution that governs the future. Which, what things can happen, which are most likely, which are somewhat likely, which are unlikely. If you have that consistently, you are a superior uh, understander and you can be a superior investor. So I think the question is, what today is the probability distribution that governs the future? And, and one of the things I say in the book, which, I, which I'm happy with, is that the future, investment performance in particular for me, is like a bowl full of lottery tickets. You never know which ticket's going to be chosen. Sometimes the bowl has 70% winning tickets and 30% losing tickets. Sometimes it has 70% losing tickets and 30% winning tickets. Wouldn't it be nice to know the difference? I think it's possible. But you want it, when, when it's 70% winners and 30% losers, you want to go all in. You want to invest heavily in aggressive securities. And you reach into the bowl, or maybe the gods of fate 
reach into the bowl, and they pull out a ticket, and it's a loser. So, you know, uh, as, as my best friend uh, Bruce Newberg says out in California when we play backgammon, which is a game that's dominated by dice, there are probabilities and outcomes. We can get the probabilities on our side. That does not ensure a favorable outcome, but it's, it's the only thing we can try to do so, and that's what the book is all about. How did you, how did being a writer and author make you a better professional? And specifically, how has it accrued to Oak Tree to basically have you sure. out in the public domain as an author? When I write the memos, I always think of something that I didn't have in mind before I started the memo. I'll give you a simple example, since we've been talking about risk and probabilities. Um, in 06, I wrote a memo with a clever title, Risk. And I tried to put down everything that I could think of about risk that I knew. And so I'm sitting there typing it out, and I wrote that you can't measure risk in advance. You can't quantify risk in advance. And uh, I think that's true. You can't measure risk even after the fact. You buy something for $100. A year later, you sell it for $200. Was it risky? Maybe. The point is, in my opinion, you can't measure risk even after the fact. And that's something that I... This revelation I literally, yep. I literally hadn't thought about it before I sat down. In the book, when I was writing about psychology, I realized that there was something that deserved, that I hadn't planned to write about, that deserved its own chapter. And that was the cycle in attitudes towards risk. Because I think that the way people think about risk has an enormous impact on the market, and it changes volatilely. And people are supposed to be these computers who, who look at risk-adjusted returns and make intelligent decisions on that basis, and, and nothing could be further from the, from the truth. When the market is doing well, the economy is thriving, and companies are reporting good profits, and the media are telling good stories, and everybody feels good, what do they say? Risk is my friend. The more risk you take, the more money you make. And I feel entirely comfortable taking risk today. And by the way, I don't see any risks on the horizon. So bring it on. And then for the next year or two, the economy suffers. Corporation profits disappoint. The media now turned into uh, telling scare stories. The the prices are cascading down, and the motion goes through the floor. And now what do people say? Risk-bearing is just another way to lose money. I don't care if I ever make a penny in the market again. I just don't want to lose any more. Get me out at any price. And this fluctuation in attitudes towards risks probably does more than any other one thing to influence the swings of the market. And, and again, this is an idea that I, I had no thought that I would write a chapter about that. So, you know, if you, the great thing about writing is you have to think things through. You can't have some rough, unformed, uh, un, un, imprecise view. It has to be crisp. It has to yeah. be crisp. Yeah. So, uh, you have to, in order to convince others, you have to convince yourself. Sure. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you for doing thank such you. an interesting oh. job, Ashok. Yep. And uh, I, I look forward to coming back. Yeah, thank you very much, Howard.
This podcast was recorded on October 17th, 2018. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.